Welcome to Real Gym Radio. I am Daniel, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Jared Dubin of the Last Night in Basketball Substack of various different outlets and fairly frequently of this podcast. And we really go all over the league talking about some of the big stories of the first month of the season, including Tyrese Maxey, the surprising teams in the West, the rookie class. Really enjoyed the conversation. Brought to you by FanDuel. FanDuel.com slash Boston. New customers get $200 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet. Episode runs over an hour. Lots of great stuff in here. I hope you'll enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, man. Always a good time. I wanted to open it up to you in terms of where to start. You cover a lot of ground on your Substack, but between film findings and last night in basketball, what is sticking out the most to you roughly a month into the season? I feel like everybody's talked about it, but it's Tyrese Maxey. Like, sure. You know, um, I wrote maybe like a week or so into the season that he, he was obviously playing really, really well to start, but I had found something in like the pick and roll data where he and Embiid were seeing more drop coverage by far than any pick and roll duo in the NBA. And that if Maxi got like a little bit more aggressive looking for his shot, it would take off and go like into the stratosphere. And that's basically what's happened over the last like week and a half, two weeks or so. It's just, it's completely outrageous what he's doing and the volume, what he's shooting from three on a ridiculous volume. He, I think he's almost at 50, 40, 90, if I'm remembering correctly on outrageous volume the leap that he's taken from one year to another in terms of volume and efficiency is really impressive stuff it is impressive stuff and yeah he's getting close to 50 40 90 he's 49 43 95 so yeah that that that's very close and with Maxi, the timing really couldn't be more fortuitous for the Sixers and for, I mean, maybe you could argue last year then some things would get recon, recontextualized, but what this does for Daryl Morey, for the Sixers organizationally, and I'm not saying Maxi is going to keep up this. I mean, he might. I mean, I, I'm not putting it past him. He has been a wonderful player. And for example, like, I think the difficulty of his threes has gone up meaningfully this year because just his role within the offense has changed. But he's been a consistently good three-point shooter for a couple of years now, even though that wasn't where he started. And, you know, the, the two-point finishing has been about the same. He's taking more, but he's been making about the same rate overall. So what I mean by it is why it's so important for the Sixers organizationally. One, it's less likely that they're going to have a dip this year, which there was a potential for downside risk. We, you never know exactly what is in Joel Embiid's or anyone else's mind, like what they're thinking, what they're valuing. But the other part of it is, I think Sixers management now, but especially if things go the way that that I think is reasonably possible, they can go into the trade deadline, go into the offseason, depending on when they want to use the spending power they have, and say, the player we're getting is going to be more of a secondary offensive option, secondary tertiary, rather than primary. And that makes certain guys significantly more interesting to them and certain guys significantly less interesting to them. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, there, I think at this point, and I think uh, Kyle Newbeck might have wrote about this last week, if I'm remembering correctly, they are probably better off going after like multi-positional defending kind of offensive role players than they are going after like, you know, the, the third star type just because of what that might do to your defense. If you have Maxi and another like on ball creator type, like the Zach Levine stuff is out there. 
I don't think that's right for them. First of all, it might take the ball out of Maxi's hands a little bit. Second of all, you'll be very flammable in the backcourt with that defense, and that puts even more pressure on Embiid. But I, I do agree with you, though. Like, it takes so much pressure off of them in regards to, like, the Embiid timeline stuff. The Vultures were already circling. There was so much, like, the Knicks should be keeping an eye on R.J. Bar- uh, on R.J. Barrett, on, uh, on Joel Embiid kind of stuff going around, you know, shortly before and even in the first week of the season, that stuff was, was all over the place. And with Maxi emerging like this, I think it justifiably quiets that down quite a bit. And obviously this is stuff that's, you know, been gone over in various places already, but the degree to which it's important to the league, I think it makes sense for, you know, everybody to be talking about it. True. And the other factor, and Derek Bodner and I did an extended podcast about this topic when when James Harden got traded Halloween day after, you know, that, that general time frame, on how that could potentially shift the Sixers' timeline a little bit. And as I've been watching, you know, the games when Melton is just hitting his shots, and, and I mean, Tobias Harris has had a very nice start to the year, I've been warming to the idea, warming to the idea that it might be better to go after the player they want sooner rather than later. And the reason why is bird rights. Because the pathway to significant cap space involves saying goodbye to a number of the Sixers pending unrestricted free agents. Like, you you could probably, like, theoretically, I think you could probably get somebody on a 30, on a 30, 25-30% max and keep DeAnthony Melton, probably. I'd have to work on the math a lot and be, feel really confident in it. But if it's like, if you, you know, obviously Tobias Harris is completely out the door in that circumstance and some of the other guys, I mean, Batum has been, MVP's probably going to retire. So, but a lot of those circumstances. So if you, but if you could get, depending on what you have to include in the trade, if you could get an Ananobi, if you could get, I mean, whoever else you want to talk about, whether they're a freeze or not, if you have the commitment that they'll stay, what that allows you to do is if you like the, some of the guys that you have right now, it's a lot easier to keep them. If, uh, the only guy that really makes sense for them in terms of like a big splurge free agent signing this offseason, if they do get to free agency, to me, is Ananobi. Like, are they really going to sign Kawhi if he gets to free agency? I mean, probably they would if he wanted to go there. But like, th- does that make sense for them more than somebody more healthy and younger? Like, you know, so that is the kind of thing that I could see. Like, you want to get ahead of the market because – what if he gets traded to somewhere else and decides, hey, I like it here? You know, like I, I usually am not nuts about doing that, but in their position where the thing that you want to spend on in free agency might not actually be available to you, there are situations where it could make sense to sort of get ahead of the market, give up what you have to do to get the guy in the door and give yourself an advantage in re-signing him as long as it gets communicated to you like, hey, this guy that, you know, whoever it is that we're going to get at the deadline or in a few weeks when players become trade eligible or whenever it is, it it might make sense to do that. Another part of the argument in favor of OG for the Sixers is that there isn't, because of positional scarcity, there isn't really like a low-end version of that. Like, there, there isn't really a way to get like, okay, you can spend $30 million or $40 million on something else, and then you can get a $10 million OG and Nobi. Like, that's just not the way the NBA works right now. And the $10 million OG Ananobis are like Nick Batum and PJ Tucker because they're old. Exactly. And so you're not using them as a necessarily a long-term piece of your core. 
And then you get into a lot of the complications about how many games they can play and everything else. And and there could be challenges. I mean, we talked about the the flexibility, like the, the what the Sixers potentially scaling down the offensive role of this third player, whoever that is. OG Anadobi hasn't always exactly responded. He hasn't played the way of somebody who's necessarily thrilled about being a third option. Maybe and and so to me that would have to be a part not only for Maury but also for Nick Nurse, who knows Ananobi well, of the conversations with him and about him is how willing is he to accept that kind of role. But the other part of it is while Maxi has improved markedly defensively, I think he's gotten better and and he had three nice blocks in that in that fifty point game. You don't want him on your point of attack uh, opponent because that's just not something you want to do anymore and. You probably don't want Maxi on the other teams like a wing threat, if that's what exists. And and not every team is starting an Isaac Okoro now. Not every team is starting somebody that you can hide. And so Milton, if you can retain him, can solve one of those spots. But if you bring in somebody like Levine, then you just have too many fires, big or small. And if your goal is to win a championship, if your goal is to like make it to the conference finals or something else, there's a very distinct chance that... Zach Levine is a better basketball player than some of the stuff they might get in unrestricted free agency. But if your goal is loftier or at least having a chance, I just don't think their defense can get good enough with that. Yeah, that touches on something that we've talked about before where, you know, a lot of times in the playoffs in recent years, it's become about like minimizing weaknesses as much as maximizing strengths and not having players where you need to hide them on defense or where opponents can hide their poor defenders on your players that matters just as much once you get past the top you know what having the top one or two guys that actually have the talent to make you a championship caliber team it matters just as much that the guys you put on the court don't have like an enormous weakness than it does that they have an enormous strength it's also i mean there are plenty of players that have been examples here and i invoked isaac okoro before of there's a difference between the like statistical just base number like Isaac Okoro last year shot 36% on threes and he's shooting 40% so far in a small sample this year but he never takes them and so with the the idea that defenders are using and especially once you get to a playoff series is how much is this player going to hurt us and player you can you can be hurt or not hurt by an offensive player in a lot of different ways and that I like that the discourse has moved beyond percentages for that because they can be very misleading. It's much more about how the defense treats you than about what percentage that you're going to shoot. Like they have to care that you're open and shooting a shot. There was that whole thing. It's going back now, you know, like 10 or whatever years ago, like, oh, you know, Rajon Rondo's shooting 48% from mid-range this year. That's a good shot for him now. And it's like, yeah, because everyone gives him 12 feet of space to take it because they want him to take it. And, you know, there are some players that can take advantage of that runway of space or of being left open. You know, nobody wanted to guard Dwayne Wade beyond the three-point line, but because of who he was and his athleticism and the different ways that he was able to make teams pay, it mattered a lot more than if you're, you know, not covering – like you said, Isaac Okoro beyond the three-point line. There are, are just players that are better able to take advantage, even if they don't have the skill set, to take the specific shot that they're being left open for. I think listeners will be well aware of this. Like listeners to this podcast, if you hear me talk about basketball, you hear this, is that it's also about the other possessions that the guy doesn't take the shot. And so 
I'll use Okoro again, not that I'm trying to abuse him for this, but Isaac Okoro is taking roughly three three three-pointers per 36 minutes. So that means there are a whole lot of possessions per 36 minutes where he is not taking that shot. And so if you're, even if he's making 40%, if he's doing it on that kind of volume, the benefits that the other team is getting from having his defender be somewhere else are higher than having his defender be on him. And that's a problem. Right. Like at three attempts per 36 minutes, 40%, that's what they're giving up like 1.2 threes per 36 minutes by leaving him as wide open as humanly possible. That that's is exactly correct. That damaging, you know? And sometimes that'll be, you know, two made threes and sometimes it'll be zero. And that is a real challenge. And and it has been useful to kind of formulate that. I think Brandon Ingram, who, of course, his game has changed dramatically since then, was one of the guys who who made me think about that. I, I want to transition to the team that the Sixers made their blockbuster trade with on Halloween or thereabouts. I can never remember what was on like the 31st or the 30th or the 1st. I know it was around then. And that is the LA Clippers. And this came up a little bit on Dunked On recently, but my transition from Clippers optimist to Clippers pessimist, has it has suited me emotionally pretty well, where <laughs> it's just... There is a way for this to work, and the reporting that came out on Friday that Russell Westbrook is willing to come off the bench, that could facilitate some stuff. But my fundamental challenge with the Clippers is I don't understand how they maximize the group they have on offense or defense now. Yeah, I was not a particularly big fan of the deal for them. Like I understand the cost for acquisition compared to the quality of player that they're getting is not very high but the way it changes their team and the way it forces guys to play in wildly different roles and the diminishing returns that you get with the talent that is already on hand i I just think it does not make as much sense as they seemed to think it would and i know that Kawhi and PG have been sort of like longing for uh, you know a conductor of the offense type of point guard that could you know make them more organized than they've been over the years and someone who's going to distribute the ball and get guys the ball in the right spots which Harden obviously is capable of but that takes the ball out of their hands too often and you know James said it himself like he needs to take catch and shoot jumpers and he is just not comfortable doing it and hasn't been for going on like seven or eight years now. So when he's off the ball, he's just not as valuable of a player as he should be based on his skill set because he has to catch and then go into a step back instead of taking a catch and shoot jumper. And that negates the advantage of of being a good shooter off the ball. It does. I love that you brought that up. And I'll add one other thing to that side of the ledger, which is Harden being more limited off ball also reduces the downside. I'll phrase it in the double negative, which I don't always love, but whatever, of putting a less talented defender on him because Harden now is not a phenomenal finisher. You, If you don't overreact to what he's doing, then you're tightening the windows and the shots that you're conceding by not doing that are you're conceding worse shots. Like, so you're, you're getting a better fix. And if you, you know, if you want to bring your help defender over a little bit to prevent like an open layup, sure, obviously that that's no problem whatsoever. But if the goal is to, you know, like if, if you overreact and give him a passing lane for an open three, then the Clippers offense is going to be humming. And I think especially if Clippers are defining success by what they can do in the playoffs, I'm pretty sure teams will have that figured out by then. Yeah. 
and you know, I, I, like everybody's obviously been talking about the offense because it's it's been an issue. The defense to me is a bigger problem. I agree. Um, you know, especially if you ever want to have Russ and Harden on the court at the same time, which maybe you don't want to do that. But it's it's I'm not I wasn't enthusiastic before it happened, and I'm even less enthusiastic now that we've seen them play a bunch of games. And I have watched, I think, three of the six games, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, so it's it's not been great. And they, they play later tonight. I think they're playing Houston. So, you know, we'll see what happens there. But it's not something that I was thrilled with to start. And I don't think that the returns have been – like, I didn't expect it to be this ugly for for this long but i wasn't enthused about what it was going to do for them as much as they seemingly were the challenge for me isn't so much that they're playing really badly now it's that i have trouble and maybe this is a limitation of imagination i will acknowledge that possibility to see how they reach those heights like Mm -hmm. they it seems to me like the way especially when you consider like unless we're talking about like those very narrow points where, like, Kawhi is activated defensively like he was at times against Luka in those playoffs. I mean, I mean, I mean, Kawhi, we're not that far removed from him being an awesome playoff player, but we are removed from that. And Paul George, you know, he can come and go a little bit. He has some great games and he'll have some, some flubs. But the other part of it is you brought up defense, and I think that's a, a key element of the question for the Clippers is also, like, what is their best five? What is the theory of their lineups that are going to succeed? Because, like, there was a moment I was going, I was just going ballistic in one of their recent losses. I think I've watched three or four of their games with Harden, where they were playing extremely small. They had, I think it was, like, I think it was Kawhi technically at the five, and then eventually they went to talk, they, I think they had some Tucker. This wasn't the game that they were closer, and it was the one before that. And what I kept on thinking about is I'm like, okay, the reason that you go small generally is to be more ver- more switchy, more versatile defensively, and or better spacing. But they were playing at least one, typically two, bad shooters. So you're not really getting that spacing anyway. And they weren't connected enough, they weren't executing enough defensively to make that part of it work too. So it's like, well, I mean, to me, the more logical thing to do there is either A, play better players, or B, if you have a big who's better than some of your smalls, play him more. And, you know, I think Zubats can do some of that. And is that the actual answer? I, I genuinely don't know. Yeah, I struggle to see the upside case, I guess, in the same way that you do, especially now that they are down. Like they don't have – or actually I guess they're about to sign Daniel Tice to be the backup center. Yes, it looks Not like that Ty- that makes a dramatic difference. But and then you look at the guys coming off the bench too. Like, how do like Bones and Norm Powell fit on a team with these four guys? You know, it's like, a great point. Terrence Mann fits pretty well. Zubat fits pretty well. But the rest of the rotation, it's really tough. There was a point around, like I think it was before Harden, like when the trade had happened, but Harden wasn't available, or maybe it was even after that. It was after that probably, where they were starting Bones and Russ. And I'm just like, oh, you're not like this, this doesn't this it doesn't. was right before, like you said, it was before Harden was ready to play. I and think I'm, it was in like one or two games. And I was just like, Ty Lue, this isn't going to work. You're you're playing too many, too many guys, not only too many guys who want the ball in their hands, but too many guys who do a lot of freelancing on defense. And that can be a very real problem. You brought up before the big game that the Clippers are playing on 
Friday against the, the against the Rockets. We will the, most people will probably listen to this after that game occurs, so we're not going to do a specific breakdown. But I do want to talk to you about the two Western Conference teams that I think are really and there and there are others we can discuss as, as doing this too. But the two that are most clearly kind of exceeding expectations in the early going, and that to me is the Rockets and the Timberwolves. I guess the place to start there is which of those two teams do you think is closer to reflecting their actual team quality with their really hot start? Oh, I think it's definitely Minnesota. Um, you, I looked into some of the underlying data on some of these things. I did a story at the Messenger the other day, and the Rockets, like Dylan Brooks has like a Steph Curry shooting, true shooting percentage right now that's obviously not gonna sustain for all that much longer if it sustains for even a few more days and -hmm. you go over to things like you know the dunks and threes adjusted efficiency they're you know below average on offense and defense in those and look to say like you know the rockets aren't a six and three quality team that like that doesn't mean that they're bad it doesn't like take anything away from their start the six wins all count the fact that they look like a professional basketball team this year is such a massive improvement from where they were over these last two years that it's like it's hard to overstate what it means for them that they can actually see the guys on their team playing in a real basketball setting like i i was disgusted watching them at times last year i couldn't even put them on the tv and now it's like okay like i can actually see what jalen green looks like when he attacks a closeout with you know, real space afforded to him and isn't just driving into guys to drive into guys. Or you can see Shangoon hit a cutter that is looking for the ball when he's cutting to the basket. Like, and they're playing, you know, defense with organized principles and they're trying to accomplish things on defense. And none of that was true last year. None of it. So even if they're not going to be, you know, a playoff team or even a play-in team, I'm really impressed with the way they look on the court this year because the professionalization of the organization down there, I think really impresses me. I threw out Ime Odoka as a possibility of somebody who could win coach of the year in part, just because the stark difference between what the Rockets have been and what they are could be as big, as big as it's been. Now I like you. I mean, one of the other key stats that I've been pointing to with the Rockets is they're allowing the league's lowest opponent shooting percentage from three, generally something teams don't do a ton to control, and the league's fourth highest percentage field goal percentage at the rim. So generally speaking, one of those things you do a lot to control, one of those things you do relatively little to control, and they're in the pendulum is, is swung one way, and that's not the way that you expect to, to persist. A lot of the other things about their defense, I mean, they're doing a good job on the glass. The shots they're forcing are generally, you know, like they're, they're forcing shots in the right areas. Those things are good. So like the part of it that I think is really positive for the Rockets, and to me, they're actually further, like their play, even if we discount it the way that you and I both are, arguably is further from what I expected than the Wolves, just if you go like expected win total shift, that kind of thing. But it is still it is still a fundamentally different thing than Minnesota, where they're, you know, they're dangerous. Like they're, 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 the, the way I like the way Nate put it, and they've had some serious opponent shooting luck too, but from three. But Minnesota's defense is looking like what not only we all hoped, but also what I'm presumed Tim Connolly expected it to look like last year. And that makes this Wolves team a lot more interesting, a lot more dangerous. Because if, like, let's say it's not number one, but let's say it's top five, top 10, and they can keep their offense credible. And I think their offense can play better than they have so far. 
then like we're just talking about a straight up very good team. Yeah, I would imagine this is exactly what Tim Connolly envisioned when he made the Rudy Gobert trade. You know, thankfully for from their perspective, Gobert's um, rim protection numbers are back much more in line with where they were in Utah than where they were last year. These numbers are from earlier in the week, but he was at you know 44.9% when he was within five feet of the rim and the shooter, which last year that was at 58.1%, which is wildly out of character for him. So obviously it's been much better this year. Nas Reed's rim protection numbers look good. Jaden McDaniels, obviously we know, is one of the best perimeter and combo forward defenders in the league. I think Anthony Edwards is playing some of the best defense of his career. Mike Conley is not obviously a physically gifted defender at this point of his career, but he's not going to kill you because he's never in the wrong spot. Like he's going to be in the right spot at the right time. And even if he can't put up as much resistance as he used to, and he can get bullied a little bit because he's always been on the smaller side, like he knows what he's doing and he's going to execute the scheme in exactly the way that you want him to. So they just have an infrastructure on that side of the ball that makes sense to me. And like maybe it gets undermined by Carl Towns or maybe, you know, the, the bench defense isn't quite as good as it's looked so far. But I think that the infrastructure is there for it to be very good. But I did just watch the Suns absolutely tear them apart last night with a variety of pick and roll stuff that I think is at least somewhat replicable. If you have guys that are comfortable operating in the in-between areas, one of the things about NBA defense at this point, especially if you're playing like a drop scheme, like the Timberwolves do for the most part is a lot of it involves like forcing players to specific spots on the floor because they're inefficient or because it's hard to access the type of efficient shots that you want to when you're passing from those spots or if you have to spot a cutter from those spots. But when you have players that are comfortable and want to go to those spots on the floor, like Devin Booker and Kevin Durant, like if you force Devin Booker or Kevin Durant to the elbow, that's not good for your defense, you know? And then once you have to start sending more defenders there and you start doing things like junking your regular scheme and getting out of your usual rotations, that's when you can see things happen like happened last night when the Suns hung, you know, literally a 160 offensive rating on them in the first three quarters of the game. Now, the Suns obviously are much different than pretty much any other team in the league. It's very hard for another team to replicate that. But I do wonder what happens against specific players that are comfortable operating in those areas of the floor. There is a distinct possibility to me that the Wolves are going to be a much better regular season team than playoff team. And some of that gets down to the idea of defensive versatility and offensive undeniability. I mean, if Towns plays the way he has in some of the games, then you can make that work. But then there are some others where it hasn't been great. And you can have the variability of somebody like McDaniels, like where he, you know, he's, he's, he'll have games where his shot is just looking a little bit broke. And they, they really need, I talked about this with John Krasinski on last week's pod. I think they really need all five of their starters healthy because even though they have good depth, they don't really have depth that replaces their starters. It's a different sort of thing. It's like, a, it's more of a bench mob idea. And that is a real challenge for a team if your goal is to like win the title, especially if you're not winning the title as like the most talented team in the league, is you need everyone to be healthy all of the time. And so that's a part of it. And the team that I invoked this for last year, incidentally, a team that played very big and that had some flawed defensive players, was Cleveland. And I don't think that 
Cleveland, the way the way Cleveland exited the playoffs was unusually bad. But the idea that some teams are a better fit for the regular season than the playoffs is absolutely true. I don't know yet that it's absolutely true about the Wolves, but the idea that you have to like, if you're going to be like a high level team, you have to face a lot of different kinds of opponents. I think that is true. I definitely agree that it's true. The idea of Minnesota getting knocked out of the playoffs specifically because they get absolutely hammered on the offensive glass or on the defensive glass seems uh, not that uh, within the realm of possibility to be right, considering right, right. The, the way that team is built. But it could be, like I said, a different kind of team. Like if they face Phoenix in the first round or something like that at this point, I could see that not going the way that they wanted to at this point based on – obviously it's just one game, but – it's. I, I think it makes sense from the way the teams are constructed. There's always going to be there are always going to be teams that pose different problems for you than others. And I think that we've seen with Gobert teams that if you get guys who are comfortable like operating in the mid range areas of the court, whether it's the elbow or the back of the paint or anybody that isn't always trying to get all the way to the rim. There are issues that you can present against that kind of defense. And if you have bigs that can shoot, or if you can go to lineups where you have four or five shooters on the court, that presents even more of a problem. And obviously that's a problem for every kind of team. But like you said, if you don't have the versatility to play a different style and change things up and match what you need to against those kind of opponents, then all of a sudden that one series that presents an issue for you can end your season. There's also the element, and this relates to Phoenix, but also potential series against Denver, which is Minnesota, I think their offense is good. And, and there have been times over the last two years, especially two years ago, where it's been great. I If there's a series that they play that is a shootout, where it's just like basically that the neither team's defense totally works, I'm Against most high-level opposition, I'm probably going to think the other team's going to come out. Like a, a series against Phoenix, if the theory defensively from Minnesota doesn't work, or I mean Denver, I'm going to pick Denver in a shootout against anybody right now with how well how well they play when their best players are available. So like that, that could be a potential problem too, because you know there are always the possibility of like a series that just goes haywire in that specific way. It's happened so many times before. Yeah, it's. I think it's about like individual shot creation at that point too. Obviously, Edwards at this point can create pretty much any shot he wants. Mike Conley, and if you put him in a pick and roll and he gets the right kind of advantage in that situation, he can create a shot whether for himself or Gobert or Towns on the pop. But you look at some of these other teams, like the the, the quality of shot creation you can get with Jokic and Murray or Durant and Booker or LeBron and AD even at, at, when they both have it going. Like it's a, a little bit of a different level than what Minnesota has right now. That doesn't mean that they can't win. It just means that they probably have to win a certain way. And if you get into a series that isn't played that certain way, it becomes more difficult than it should be based on the, the quality of your team. Is there something Minnesota could do between now and the playoffs for you to feel more confident in them as a playoff team? I don't know if there's something they can do like roster wise. I think Jaden McDaniels becoming a higher level creator as like a second side guy or even being able to run the occasional pick and roll or them figuring out something more that puts (sighs) – I'm trying to figure out how to word this, like something with with Towns that puts him in more creation opportunities where Gobert 
doesn't clog the paint. Like if we can get like some four or five pick and rolls between Towns and Gobert and see how that works. That's something like the Knicks offense early in the season was just getting absolutely strangled. And then our friend Fred Katz pointed this out. In back-to-back games, they ran like a bunch of Randall Robinson pick and rolls, and that both got Randall going, and it loosened things up for them offensively because a guy that is one of their creators but isn't always the pick and roll dive man had the ball in his hands and didn't have the big man clogging the paint. I think that's something that could be interesting for them to look at too. I like that. I think that could potentially do do some really good things for them. And it also, there's kind of more of an imperative to figure that out with, I mean, the, the, the Knicks always play big, so you could argue it's the same imperative. But with Gobert, who is going to be a part of your best lineups, like I don't think the I don't think the Wolves have the personnel to go to a best five that doesn't involve him. Like I, I just don't think they can pull that off, especially because they don't really have that kind of extra player who's a perimeter defender. So, so you could do that, and Towns isn't a versatile defensive guy either. So that would be that's a way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. You get that player out on the floor. So far, by the way, they have run. Nine direct picks, which is basically where the the ball handler or a player one pass away ends the possession with a shot, a, field, a turnover, or a foul. And they've gotten 10 points out of those, which is pretty good. 1.11 points per. Uh, is that with Towns as the ball handler? Is that the- Towns is the ball handler and Gobert is the screener. Okay. That's obviously not a lot of picks. It's like 1.2 per game or something like that. Um, but I am interested to see if they do that a little more. I think that that could be an interesting little wrinkle for them. Plenty more to discuss, but first a message from FanDuel. Snap into action this season with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, new customers get $200 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet. That is $200 in bonus bets, win or lose. If you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there's no better time to get in on the action. The app is so easy to use, wide range of betting options, including spreads, player props, which I love, over-unders, and more. So visit FanDuel.com slash Boston kick off the NFL season. FanDuel, official partner of the NFL, must be 21 or over and present in Massachusetts. Hope is here. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling helpline ma.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support. Play it smart from the start. GameSenseMA.com or call 1-800-GAM-1234. Jared, I did not know this before we started recording, but there are five teams currently in the NBA who are in the top 10 in both cleaning the glasses, offensive rating, and defensive rating, which filters out garbage time. We've discussed a few of them, and there are a few that we're kind of not really discussing for other reasons. Denver, Boston, no surprises there. Philly, already talked about them a fair amount, and, and we'll see what their defense Houston, one of the bigger surprises, and and we we talked about how those numbers could shift a little bit. In the Oklahoma City Thunder. Good. Okay, I wanted to talk about this. (laughs) Seventh in offense, fifth in defense. I was there in person last night as they dispatched a very shorthanded, flawed Warriors team, in part because they could not miss a three at all. Isaiah Joe was seven for seven, which was incredible. And... The Thunder, I, I was making this joke uh, to somebody a couple days ago, and I'm like, I, it was another team, and I'm like, this team can't be this, like, a, a, X team, it might have been the Rockets, like, they can't be 
10 spots better than their talent on defensive rating because the only team that's allowed to do that is the Oklahoma City Thunder. I absolutely adore watching them. Like, I'm I'm already so far in on Chet Holmgren. It's, like, hard to believe how far in I am on him. Like, he's just going to be an absolutely special defensive player. The things that he's able to do defensively, despite weighing, like, as much as I do, probably, and I'm, like, he's got to be at least a foot taller like I'm six foot is he over seven feet tall I think I think he's I think he's about seven yeah I think that's I think it's fair to say he's a foot taller yeah he's listed seven one so he's over a foot taller than me like he is able to get backed into an area that typically means like you're just getting dunked on and dunked over and he's able to contest and even block shots without fouling while getting like pushed around in a way that I don't really understand how it's physically possible and I noticed something in like the first week of the season. He is so good at controlling his blocks and keeping them in play and having that kickstart transition opportunities for a team that, because it doesn't have a ton of shooting, tends to struggle somewhat in the half court and needs to run a lot. Like he just makes so much sense for everything they need. Obviously, they're getting killed on the glass and, you know, their their defensive rebound rate is like the kind of thing that shouldn't even be real. Like it said, they're giving up over 30% offensive rebound rate so far, which is insane, but that they're doing that and still being a top 10 defense, considering also how young they are. I think they are the youngest team in the league minutes weighted age. Still it's them or Detroit. And that just makes no sense. Like the core, the correlation between age and defense, when you're that young, you're supposed to be really, really bad on defense and what they're doing just impresses me so much. They don't make many mistakes. And I, I've praised Dagnall previously and I'll continue to do so that it seems like the Thunder are very prepared for understanding at least the basics of what their opponent wants to do and taking them out of the most foundational things. Like I'm not saying they're going to take away everything. They don't necessarily have the personnel to do that, but they can, they can handle a lot of it. And we're also getting, some of the, and I mean, that game was a demolition, So, and this isn't necessarily why. The difference in how playing your seven-foot guy with perimeter skills at the five versus at the four makes a world difference. Because it's not like either the Spurs or the Thunder have a ton of shooting except in very specific lineups. But playing Chet next to, I mean, they've gone in a lot of different places at the four, especially because Kenrich Williams was out until very recently with a back issue. But doing that versus having Zach Collins, who is far from a bad player, just, you know, I don't I don't necessarily rely on him as a three-point shooter, how that opens things up for them. And Holmgren, the... Actually, I'll open the... I'll, before I get to this, I'll, I'll, I'll pass it to you. What has surprised you the most about Holmgren's game offensively or defensively so far? Surprised? I think it's like the individual shot creation. Yes. Um. Yeah, like he, he's doing stuff with the ball in his hands that, I mean shouldn't be possible for a guy his size like if Wembanyama didn't exist we would think this dude was an alien like it's it's crazy how these guys came in back-to-back years and the type of skill they have at their size and I mean both of them you can like run a pick and roll with them and they can leverage the defense and like whip a pass across the court or pull up from three behind the screen like and Chet like 
obviously he's not going to probably back his way down in the post, but give him a face up. He can go by his man or nudge his man and get a little bit of a shot over him. The the creation stuff I think is further along than where I thought it would be. I guess because, you know, he did have an entire year between when we saw him play in college and when we saw him play in the NBA. Holmgren's feel offensively has been impressive for a while. I mean, I watched some of him in high school, saw him saw him play in person at a FIBA camp or a Team USA camp when he was like 17 or 18. I was like, I actually liked that part of his game more than his defense. And that's why the defense has been more surprising to me, because I thought it was going to take him longer. He's so skinny. And buddy Holmgren... Like it, it, the parallels for one with Wembenyama will never stop. In part because they're both un, they're unusual in similar ways, which is which is cool and very fun for the league. But the thing about Holmgren is that he understands his shape and limitations better than almost any NBA player I know. Where he knows, okay, I can get backed in this far and still credibly contest or even block this shot. And uses that, it's even at times sort of a version of pulling the chair, where he just like, oh, I can concede this space, I just can't concede this space and make sure to draw the line there. And that's, for a guy who's this young, it's stunning. Yeah, I mean, it shouldn't be possible with his physicality that he's able to like get pushed just enough, but still, like you said, come away with a contest or a block. And, like, he doesn't even get bullied as much as I thought he was going to. Like, he doesn't get pushed around that far underneath the rim. I think it's been more of an issue rebounding-wise than it has been, like, an individual defense. Individual defense, like, the dude is just really, really good. Help defense, obviously, he's incredible. The, The issue for the physicality, to me, has come in the rebounding department, which, you know, was somewhat foreseeable, but I think has been maybe even a little bit more of an issue than I thought it might be, but everywhere else it's been way less of an issue than I thought it would be. To finish the comparison, I, I brought up the Holmgren conceding ground stuff. The difference with him and Wembenyama is that Wembenyama's like, oh, I don't really have to concede anything. I just do. I just do what I do, and, and like that's the you know the, the that recovery block that he had on Jalen Williams was. I think that would that might have been in the preseason. I was just like, what the yeah. hell is this? And it was in the preseason. And 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 the the idea that the rules of basketball don't apply to him, like that's Holmgren isn't is already so adept at understanding like his limitations and the rules, and that's great. And like that will serve him extremely well as a professional for the rest of his career. And if he can get better than he is now, then it will actually serve him even more. Because and and he's good at you know if he can start creating more mismatches offensively, he's wonderful at passing off that. Like he has the toolbox to be an even more dominant player than some others like him if he can reach the level where teams freak out when he gets the ball. I'm not sure he will, but if he does that, and I mean he, the stuff is a screener and everything else is already there. Then with Wem, with Wembenyama, it's just that idea more like you could say a LeBron James or to a lesser extent Anthony Davis, where there is no box. Like that like it's it, the idea that Holmgren is like he's he's a he's a great efficient he's he's great at maximizing what's in the box and Victor Wembenyama just poofs the box away. Which they're both incredible in their own way. Like I in some ways I respect Holmgren's more than Wembenyama's because Wembenyama's just seems unfair. But hey, if you if you have the ability to poof the box, then do it. Yeah, I mean Chet, by the way, fifteen and a half, seven point eight, and two point six, fifty three, forty two, ninety one. Like that makes absolutely no sense. 
<laughs> like, I don't understand how that's possible. And and like fouls have been a little bit of an issue. He's at like something like four fouls or something per 36 minutes. And that's, that can be an issue, but like, he's not even at a league average usage rate and he's doing this. Like it's, it's really impressive stuff. And the thunder are well above league average when defensively, when Holmgren's on the floor and there is a portion of that that is opponent shooting like they're well below opponents are well below league average shooting threes, but generally the rim protection kind of numbers and frequency are are within the range and they've been terrible as you mentioned on the defensive glass, but they've been forcing turnovers. They're not fouling a ton, and that is with not only Holmgren at the five, but with I mean they have size, but they don't really have front court size if you know what I'm saying. Like the idea that. This isn't a circumstance like we've seen at times in other years, like Sacramento at, at times or a few others where it's like they're they're succeeding defensively in spite of their five. Holmgren is a part of why they are succeeding defensively, and that is extremely exciting. I would say they have good perimeter size, but the, all of their guys are perimeter guys other than him. Like It's like Shea is what, like 6'5", Giddy is 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, Dort is 6'4", six, 6'5", and Jalen Williams is what, like six, 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 seven, something like that. Like that is a team that has good size all around, but it's probably undersized against front courts, like you said. And that's obviously part of the issue with the size deficits. But it's it's a lineup that makes a ton of sense and just flows really nicely together. And they're so much more athletic than the other team on the court when these guys are out there together. Even with like Giddy is not an elite athlete. But when you have Shea and Dort and Williams and Chet, like when you were watching them play the Warriors without Step and Draymond last night, it was like watching that uh, early 2010s Thunder team in that year against the Spurs where they realized like we're so much more athletic and long and tall than these guys. We can just blow them off the court. That was what it looked like for like a decent portion of the first half last night. It did. And the other kind of, I don't want to dwell on this element of, of why the Thunder are so intriguing right now is they've already answered a lot of questions in terms of individual players and overall team quality. They have massive resources, though there are some timing elements to it, to bring to bear. And one of the one of the truths of the NBA is that the more resources you can put to solving smaller problems, the better you're going to solve those problems. So I think that they, you know, that the, there will they will need to be an adjustment. I don't think that their closing five now will be their closing five in the best versions of the Thunder, whether that comes two years from now, five years from now, whatever. I have more confidence that the Thunder can solve that than most teams, if not all teams, for two reasons. One is they have, like, you think of the big sticking points that teams can have, and they have a lot of those solved. So they have a lot of guys that can create good shots for themselves and others. They have a pretty solid defensive foundation, maybe not a perfect one against the best of the best. So what that means is you're using this just bevy of first-round picks they have, and, and there's a fair argument that none of those will probably be truly premium. Like, they, you know, the, the picks for the Rockets can't be top four, the um i mean teams like that they have first from like the jazz like maybe one of the clippers ones down the line or something like that ends up being there but for right now they don't have that but they do have the they do have the quantity and and then the other thing they have is they have a lot of places that they could make somebody saying they're well coached and so like for example if they can use those resources to get somebody with power forward size 
who is a lower usage player, but can defend credibly and can space the floor credibly, and then ideally helps them defensive rebound, like, awesome. And that player doesn't even necessarily need to close games for them. It's just something they could have within the rotation and a, a, a club that Mark Dagnall can have in his bag for when you need that type of player. To continue the Spurs comparison, basically, like if they get their version of Zach Collins, he doesn't have to start, but he could be a guy that they use when they need to use him. Sure. And they also, I mean, if they want to, one of my favorite things about Cason Wallace in the early going is how well his game fits with both Shea Gilders Alexander and Chet Holmgren. Where oh, mine is that he doesn't miss shots. Well, you, I'm, I'm, I'm accounting. I'm accounting for that at some point. Toning down for those for those who are less familiar with it right now. Cason Wallace. The I'm trying to figure out whether it's more impressive to go with the overall numbers or the okay. Well, I'll start with this. Cason Wallace, seventy eight percent true shooting on eleven usage. But also, if you if you prefer it this way. Wallace, 59% on threes, only taking three per 36, which is about the Okoro threshold, we can call it that. But then 47%, or sorry, not, sorry, not 47%, uh, 60, 68% on twos, again, on a small volume. But what I love about Wallace is, okay, so I, this came up when we were talking about Maxi, where you don't want Shea guarding the other team's best perimeter player, like the point of attack defender. You just don't want him to do that. He can do at times, and 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 Shea deserves a lot of credit for how he has improved defensively. But you just don't want that. And so then you're going to want somebody who can who can take on those assignments, but is not going to be on ball that often. But the other team has to respect. And I think Kaysom Wallace has that kind of game. And what that means for the Thunder is if it, if Wallace can reach the point where he's like a playoff starter caliber player is then it may end up being that the Thunder can, not that they have to, can, let's call it, choose the winner of Santa Clara, Jalen Williams and Josh Giddy, keep the winner, have them in the closing five. And then if you want, you can keep you can keep the loser of that and have a really good team. Or you could trade that player in, as a part of the way of solving the other problems in a better way, if you wanted to. They just have so much optionality with what they can do because of the, the ammo that they've collected over uh, how many years is it now? How long ago was the, the PG trade? Five years ago, right? Shea played his first game for the Oklahoma City Thunder in October of 2019. So, so, so yeah, four years. Four ago. years. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty outrageous. By the way, Wallace, with those finishing numbers, he's like six two or something like that. Like, he's listed. Uh, he's listed at six four, but I think that's a little generous. No way. Like there is no way that dude is six four. <laughs> Allen Iverson was listed at what six one. Like I'm sorry, that was not true either. There are some other rookies, by the way, that I'd like to talk about. Let's go. Uh, Jordan Hawkins. Yes. In New Orleans. Um, Legally, I have to hate him because he hit 756 threes (laughs) against Miami in the Final Four. Yes, he Um, did. Ruined my trip to Houston in March. But, man, that dude is fun to watch. Oh, my. And he is, like, because of all the injuries that New Orleans has had, he is, like, so intimately involved in what they're doing offensively. It's like they're they're running him around in the role that like would be for Trey Murphy, which makes sense because they're similar size and he's a really really good shooter, like not quite Trey Murphy level, and he's not shooting all that well from three, if I'm remembering correctly. He's he's at thirty six percent now, taking ten per thirty six. He's had a few games where he's just gone absolutely off. Like 
I, I watched them play Dallas the other day, and he was on fire. He was on fire against uh, Denver. Um, it's just, and that that dude will get those shots up, man. And it's it's such a dangerous weapon. I love watching him. We've also gotten a little bit, I, and I think more of this will come in time. Of part of, I, so I watched I watched the film on Hawkins um, a little bit. I got, I did a mini scout. I don't know if we ever released it, or like I don't know if we ever recorded it. And one of the things I liked most about Hawkins was he has a pretty good kind of like feel and in between game for somebody who's a good shooter. And the Pelicans, it'll probably take them some time to square all that up. But it is something that could be very useful for them of like the when the other team starts overplaying Hawkins as a as a shooter, then he can do some more reaction, get the ball, you know, maybe he like reverses, like reverses course and then gets the ball going downhill and then he makes the right decision. Like those sorts of things. And there's a distinct chance that Trey Murphy is a better version of this player when healthy than Jordan Hawkins is. The other fun part about it is they don't have to be mutually exclusive. You could just play two dudes like this if you have them. Yeah, I mean, especially on that team where you need to manufacture space around like Zion and Ingram who don't particularly fit that well together. And especially if you have those two guys and JV on the court, like you need to manufacture space somehow. I, I don't imagine that you would play that trio and these two guys together. That does, It's not a lineup that makes a ton of sense but you can experiment with it you know like you can figure out what works and what doesn't um and i do think hawkins facility with playing in those in those in-between spots like i think that can develop a little bit more he, he hasn't really gotten to the rim very often but i think if he learns how to leverage his shooting even more than he already does in terms of being able to attack closeouts and take, you know, one dribble pull-ups or sidesteps or get into the lane and spray the ball out. Like if he adds some physicality too, like he could be like an Eric Gordon kind of player, right? I think so. I mean, Gordon's strength and, and where his basis athletically are maybe underappreciated a little bit now just because they're so long ago. Like his time at Indiana is a lifetime ago for, for a lot of us. But yeah, I think in, in the realm of that is, is completely fair. I want to see how Hawkins is as a finisher over a larger sample. I mean, he's 60 percent within three feet right now. Right. He's but, taken like seven shots at the ex- Exactly. Like. So that that's why we need to kind of build that out a little bit more and I'd you know, I, I brought up the like the in between game. We'll see if he can get to the line a little bit more in time. But also, you have other people who can do that too. What other rookies did you want to bring up? Uh, Asar Thompson. Oh man. Oh my God! Like he's already one of the most fun players in the league to watch. He is so smart, man. Like the the instincts that he has on both sides of the court. Even though he's like a total non shooter so far, he's able to make plays and just make things happen on both sides of the court. He's an unbelievable rebounder already. He's like, he's averaging a double, double. He's like six, five. He's averaging more than 10 rebounds a game. Like he's a good, smart passer. He's a really good cutter already. And he fits, I think, even though neither of them can shoot right now with Cade, because he's so instinctual in his cuts. Like I love watching that dude already, man. One of my favorite things about Asar Thompson is that he is a defensive playmaker without being that much of a gambler. Like he just, because of his physicality, like, I mean, the difference to me between him and like Matisse Thibault, who is a talented player in his own right, but Asar Thompson, the parts that I've watched Pistons, which has been a fair amount because I love watching Asar Thompson, 
he's not compromising or like the far extreme of that could be somebody like Russell Westbrook, where like he's not, Asar Thompson is not compromising what Detroit is trying to do. He's just so good at doing what he's trying to do that he's causing these problems for the other team. He's got like, he's got to have 10, 15, 20 pounds on Tybal also, which I think sure. contributes to that. He's so strong. Oh my God, he's strong. Like, man, the, <laughs> the, I, I would love to see more of a man who I think has been out for. Yeah, a he's been bit. doing. He's been doing with an ankle sprain. And obviously, they have so many guys that he, you know, he wasn't starting when he was playing. And I would imagine, like, they're relatively similar. Like, I remember hearing that a man was even more of a freak of an athlete than Asar. So I didn't see any of the games that Houston played that he played in. I didn't catch them until after those first four games. So I haven't actually seen him play yet. But, I mean, if he's anything like his brother, which I imagine he is, it's like I'm going to love watching these dudes for quite a long time. They're very similar genetically. I don't know if you've heard. Um, (laughs) But the the point about how intelligent of a player Asar is, and, and I would say this too with the men, I've drawn this analogy before, so I apologize, apologies for doing it again. They remind me, and part of this is the speed that they played, and I brought this up with the Ball Brothers as well, that they remind me of that early generation of online poker players that started playing in person, and that they had just seen so many more hands than their competitors. And I don't, like, there's a weird thing that, like, when I watched the Overtime Elite film... I didn't necessarily think that they were playing great competition or anything like that. It just feels like these guys have more reps. And yes, they are older as rookies. I mean, so this is their both their age 21 season. But they seemingly have more reps than like any 21-year-old I've seen. It feels that way. Yeah, I mean, based on the way that he plays, I could see that analogy. Like, I don't know, actually, do they have more reps? I think they left high school uh, a year early to play professionally, if I'm remembering correctly, right? I believe like I believe that's correct. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's it's certainly possible that they do have just more reps than other guys because a lot of these guys will, you know, they'll go play 30 college games and they played what 50, 60, something like that overtime elite games. How well, long and I, and I, and they don't have to go to go to school in the traditional sense. I don't think I can't remember exactly how OTE handle. I don't think they have to do academics. I can't remember exactly how they do that. Um, I apologize if I get it wrong. I just don't know. Um, so they could potentially have more time for it. It's definitely, they're getting paid. So you can think of it as, as a job, as opposed to what a lot of the other ones are. And so, yeah, I, I think that there is a, a benefit there that we could potentially see long term. And it has been such an unusual circumstance that I am more excited about the 2023 rookie class. And only a portion of that is due to the players at the top. Like, I, I don't know if Wembenyama has had a better time, let's say, from from when he was drafted to now than I expected. But Asar Thompson has, Bilal Koulibaly has, Kaysen Wallace has, Jordan Hawkins has, Keontae George definitely has. And even, you know, if you want to dig further down, like Pajemski and Marcus Sasser, like, there are a lot of dudes in this class that can play. Sasser can play, man. Love that dude. He's just feisty. Have you seen Hawkes yet, by the way? Of course. Yeah, I've seen I've yeah. seen Hawkes. And I mean I, I was more familiar with Hawkes' game than most because he went to my oh, alma you're mater. You're a UCLA guy, right. Yeah. yeah. And oh, so, okay, so you're intimately familiar. I hadn't seen very much of him um in in one of the heat games that I watched earlier in the season. He just didn't play very much. 
Um, I watched them again last night against Brooklyn, and, and he was intimately involved in the proceedings in the second half. And they were, you know, they having him out there at the close. Like, kid can play. He's a playmaker. He can, he's a connector. That I know. We'll use uh, the Steve Kerr word since you're uh, out there in, in the Bay Area. Um, he can play. I like him too. Anything else you'd like to discuss? Uh, not off the top of my head, man. I, I really am, am animated about this rookie class. I like watching them a lot. There's a bunch of guys that I think are just good players. I can't wait for Amen and Scoot to be available again. And also, like another of my favorites from watching film was Taylor Hendricks, who basically hasn't played yet so far. And I was less in on Jairus Walker. I understand why he's been out of the rotation in Indiana and I mean, I'll probably do one with Caitlin Cooper at some point, but there's a whole lot of discussion worth having about the Indiana Pacers so far. Oh, my God. Tyrese Halliburton. I mean, he might be the most fun player in the league to watch right now. Like, it's him or Jokic to me, and then Steph when he's on a heater. Um, But that dude, oh, he's that absolute wizard. I said when he signed there this offseason that, like, if Bruce Brown was going to leave Jokic, the next best person that he could go play with was Halliburton, and I'm very happy for my guy out there that Pacers offense oh my god like they're <laughs> gonna score 9,000 points per 100 possessions this year it's it's absolutely glorious and I will thank you so much for taking the time thanks for having me man always a good time thanks again to Jared Dubin for taking the time to come on you can read his work at last night in basketball last night in basketball.com should get you there he also does great work on the NFL at CBS for those of you who are football inclined too and he you can follow him on social media because he does things for other outlets times he talked about the piece they wrote for the messenger ja dubin five is his handle on twitter i believe it's the same on other social medias as well i i apologize i don't have that at my fingertips right now if you want to support the show there are a lot of different ways you can do it you can subscribe download every episode real jam radio is never going to come out on a specific day of the week so subscribing is the way to do it it'll just pop into your feed whichever one that is when it comes in and if we're not in a in a podcast player that you like to use, let me know, and I will pass that along the chain. I can't fix that, but I can pass it to other people who can. It's happened over the years. And you can also help other people find the show, leaving a rating and review, or word of mouth. All of those are much appreciated. But the single most important thing you can do for Real GM Radio and any other that has them is to check out our sponsors for this episode. That is FanDuel, FanDuel.com slash Boston, as I talked about during the show. You can also check out my other work, Dunked On, Dunked On Prime, Going Strong as always. I was realizing recently that we're probably getting somewhat close to doing awards. Um, probably still a couple weeks away from that, but that was excited about that. And of course, 15 and 60s, gamers, everything else. Then Nate and I do roughly a weekly broadcast with NBA League Pass, which is called the NBA Strategy Stream. We will be back next week. It's typically going to be on Mondays. There is a calendar that you can find on social media. But the coming week, we'll be doing Kings Pelicans. Should be a very fun one. That is at 8 Eastern, 5 Pacific. You can see it through League Pass. You can also watch it after the fact if you feel so inclined. We're also doing playback pretty regularly for the NBA in-season tournament, NBA Cup, whichever you want to call it. So that those are on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Typically, if we're not going to an NBA Cup game, we'll be doing it on playback. Uh, and then we'll be probably doing some playbacks outside of the tournament too, but we don't know that just yet. 
You can also check out my written work at The Athletic. I have a couple pieces in process now that I've been doing the groundwork for, and I think I have one that's through editorial as well. So that should be coming out relatively soon. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. I am not the greatest at replying, but I acknowledge that at the outset, and that's why I tell you what I tell you. And that is all for now. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Thank you.